You are listening to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Stay tuned for the Heartland Labor Forum, radio that talks back to the boss. Welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum, a weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. This show is produced by a team of volunteers from a broad range of workplaces and unions. The views expressed on the Heartland Labor Forum are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any unions involved. And welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum. I'm Judy Ansel. Tonight's show is being underwritten by Kansas City Building Trades Council and United Steelworkers District 11. The Greater Kansas City Building and Construction Trades Council represents 17 construction trades within Kansas City and surrounding areas. We build Kansas City. And United Steelworkers District 11, representing 35,000 members in the Midwest, protecting worker rights and organizing the unorganized. We support union-made products. And the Heartland Labor Forum and KKFI thank our underwriters for their support. On tonight's show, from the Gilded Age to the 1920s, employers and allies used terrorism to control workplaces and communities. Tonight on the show, we'll talk to Chad Pearson, author of Capitals Terrorists, Klansmen, Lawmen, and Employers, and find out how terrorism disempowered the working class and its unions. Then, What's it like to be a progressive in charge of a traditionally conservative labor union of prison guards? We'll talk to AFSCME Local 3654 President Lynn Fields. In the news, RNs who held strikes in Austin and Wichita locked out by Ascension Healthcare. And the Coalition of Labor Union Women endorses a ceasefire in Gaza. Our feature at the end of the show is Remember Our Struggle with Ariana Blackman. And now for the news. And now the news from our side, December 14, 2023. RNs who held a one-day strikes in Austin, Texas and Wichita, Kansas last Wednesday were locked out by Ascension Hospitals for three days when they tried to return to work. Finally, on Sunday, they marched back to their jobs en masse, condemning the lockout as a retaliation for their legitimate protest against Ascension's union busting. The nurses are members of National Nurses United. 
nearly 2,000 nurses at Wichita's Ascension via Christie St. Francis and Ascension via Christie St. Joseph in Wichita and Ascension Seton Medical Center in Austin struck. Amanda Pierce Chang, RN, in the ICU at Ascension Austin said, instead of locking us out for three days, Ascension should let us get back to work. We're ready to settle a contract that lets us give out patient care that they deserve. Nurses had struck for one day last June and, three, and the three hospitals also locked them out for three days. Nurses are negotiating first contracts with Ascension. They believe that Ascension has failed to invest its resources, including the tens of millions of dollars it does not pay in federal taxes due to its nonprofit status, back into its communities and workforce. Last month, Ascension nurses in Baltimore voted to be represented by NNU, citing many of the same problems, short and unsafe staffing and insufficient medical supplies and equipment. Ascension is the second largest and wealthiest nonprofit Catholic health system in the country. A New York Times investigation into Ascension staffing conditions reported that the hospital spent years reducing its staffing levels in an effort to improve profitability, even though the chain is a nonprofit organization with nearly $18 billion of cash reserves. Kansas City's own, well, kind of, Emil Ramirez, he's actually from Topeka originally, has been United Steelworkers Director of District 11 since 2014, covering Kansas, Missouri, and nine other Midwestern states. He was appointed by the Steelworkers Executive Board in October to be an international vice president. Emil replaces David McCall, who became Steelworker President on the death of Tom Conway. Emil Ramirez started as a pipe fitter in Local 15162 at KPL Gas Service in Topeka. In 1995, he became part of the union's international staff. He will be replaced as director by District of, of District 11 by Kathy Drummond, who comes from USW Local 9460 at Essential, Essentia Health in Hibbing, Minnesota. As international vice president, Ramirez will lead major bargaining with Goodyear in the aluminum industry with Arconic, which used to be called Alcoa, and with taconite mines in Michigan and Minnesota. He'll also serve on pension committees for various pensions. An international union vice president also participates in top-level decision-making. Ramirez said that the USW organizing strategy will still be on manufacturing and mining, especially in nickel and copper in Minnesota, Arizona, Nevada, and also in Canada. He visited South Africa last summer to build relations in Southern Africa with mining unions with which the USW can pressure companies to improve working conditions for African working workers. When asked for his vision for the future, Emil said the union faces real environmental challenges with carbon capture in industries they represent. He's very interested in research on green cement startup plants and hopes that the USW can develop a policy to build community support with indigenous peoples by providing jobs and winning their support for mining done the right way. 
Shop at Trader Joe's? Keep the following in mind from the union trying to organize workers at their stores. Last week, a small group of workers at at the Hadley, Massachusetts store announced a decertification campaign to hold a revote on the very first win at the store in Hadley. Trader Joe's United has a strong majority of support in Hadley, but Trader Joe's corporate has been softening the ground for this decertification campaign since day one by spreading misinformation, engaging in bad faith bargaining, practicing selective hiring and firing, and more. And last week, the union announced that managers have been asking new applicants about their thoughts of a, on a union during the interview process. That just... That's just in time to stack the vote in favor of decertification, since anyone hired before the filing of the decert petition can vote. The union has filed unfair labor practice charges against the latest union-busting tactic. The decertification campaign still hasn't reached the threshold of 30% of employees to trigger a store-wide vote. The union is asking for help in funding to fight Trader Joe's union busting. You can find them at TraderJoe'sUnited.org. PAI reports that the Coalition of Labor Union Women, CLU, and APALA, the Asian Pacific American Labor Alliance, have demanded a ceasefire and a diplomatic solution to the Israeli-Hamas war. At its mid-November convention in Minneapolis, CLU, which is an AFL-CIO constituency group, added the anti-Hamas war language, co-authored by its Philadelphia chapter and board member Kathy Black and a former CLUE executive director, Carol Rosenblatt, to a demand for negotiated settlement to the Russia-Ukraine war. CLUE President Elise Bryant spoke at a recent press conference of pro-peace groups convened in front of the White House, saying, We are fighting for a world in which all families can be together. The only way to actually achieve that, to stop this violence, is through a permanent ceasefire now. Virginia Rodino, the head of Apollo and also Clue's executive director, called for a permanent ceasefire, saying, All Israelis and Palestinians deserve freedom from violence. Apollo deeply mourns the devastating loss of life in Palestine and Israel and utterly condemns attacks on civilians. We stand against anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, racism, terrorism, and racially motivated, motivated violence in the United States and around the world. Clue is also demanding a massive reordering of U.S. priorities and policies away from war spending and toward domestic needs. The news was read by Judy Ansel, Stephen Hill, Chris Mann, and I'm Bruce Nissen.
The musical intro tonight is from the album Television's Greatest Hits of the 50s and 60s and is the theme song for the television series The Virginian. Percy Faith was the composer and captured the spirit of the Western frontier. Or did it really? I'm Chris Mann, and I'll be your host tonight. Tonight we'll spend time with author Chad Pearson, who researched and wrote the book Capitals, Terrorists, Klansmen, Lawmen, and Employers. Mr. Pearson dug deeply into business associations and other organizations that have conspired to use terrorism to squelch unions in the name of law in order. Yes, local, state, national leaders, lawyers, prominent businessmen, judges, newspaper editors, all have been guilty of using terrorism against the effort to organize unions. The irony is that the terrorism is done under the guise of preserving law and order. The tactics used were kidnapping, murder, incarceration, blacklisting, burning homes, hangings, ostracism, ordering people to live elsewhere, public floggings, intimidations, threats, and many other tactics that serve to put people in their place. The law and order methods used were designed to keep people obedient and working hard so that the industries served would remain in place and increase profits. Welcome, Chad. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very honored. Chad, your book is very detailed and well-structured and chronologically ordered so that we will be going from the roughly 1870s through the 1920s um, in the United States history. Um, So tell us right off the bat why uh, reading your book will benefit the labor movement. Certainly. And again, thank you so much for having me. First of all, generally, I think history is very important, uh, certainly to understand power relations. And uh, the labor movement has benefited greatly from learning about the history of of labor and strikes and, and, and unions and whatnot. But I think we need to know a lot about the folks at the top of society, the folks who have made the lives of ordinary people miserable. And I mean very miserable. Um, We must uh, know about the the roots of anti-union ideas as well as anti-union practices, okay? And so many of your listeners certainly know about this idea of the right to work and open shop and, you know, this flowery language designed to make anti-unionism appealing. A lot of those ideas are really rooted in the late 19th century, the period that I look at. And I think it's important to kind of track it and understand it. And so I want to look at how these folks you know saw unions as a problem and tried to get ordinary people to share that view i also want to under uh, folks to understand the ruthlessness with which the ruling class has employed violence violent techniques to get its way and i'm talking about uh firings and blacklistings and whippings and kidnappings drive-out operations and uh, incarceration and even murder we know that exploitation is built into capitalism but i want to make a case that terrorism is too And I also want to make the case that we need to rescue the word terrorism from the Islamophobes in our society. Um, We need to look at these people as not just the great inventors and entrepreneurs, many of them were, but also as folks who got their own 
hands dirty and, and made lives, the lives of ordinary people miserable. So I think it's important. We look at the late 19th, early 20th century. There are two things going on here. Number one, the United States became the dominant economic powerhouse. And number two, its anti-labor repression was more uh, widespread than in other industrialized countries. And those two things are absolutely related. You mentioned three business association models. The, there was the Ku Klux Klan. That was the first business association. Tell us how this business association formed. Certainly. So I uh, look back at the period of the Civil War. Now, many scholars who write about the Civil War write about the great battles and whatnot. But I'm interested in the enslaved people themselves and how they withdrew their labor power and went on what the famous black scholar W.B. Du Bois called a general strike. Right? We're talking about three to four million stopping to work. Thousands of those people took up arms and defended themselves. An absolutely transformative event. And so then the question becomes, the, the old plantation ruling class, what do they do? Well, they get organized in the aftermath of the Civil War and build vigilante organizations, including the notorious Ku Klux Klan. Unlike other writers, I argue that the Ku Klux Klan was a white supremacist employers association. I'm less interested in hate though of course many of these people were hateful, and I'm more interested in labor control and exploitation. Right? You had these former enslaved people leaving the plantations, leaving the kitchens, and Klansmen go and they kidnap, and they force them back, um, and they push out you know, outside teachers. They don't want African Americans to read. They want them to do one thing during their waking hours, shut up and work. And so uh, I'm interested in the, uh, the political economy of racism and the relationship between vigilantism and management. And I think the Klan is a good case study to sort of make that point. Yes, and you even mentioned in the book that one of the aristocrats or the plantation owners, uh, the schedule for their workers had been 12 to work till 12 midnight and up at 4 a.m. Right. So that, that's work hard. That's work hard, work that's hard. right. So Absolutely. tell. So our, your next chapter is talked about the law and order leagues. How did they differ? How, did, uh, how were they different from the Klan? And I hear uh, through your book, through reading it, that Missouri's role in inventing the law and order leagues w was great. <laughs> yes, you must be proud. Oh, uh, no. So. <laughs> <laughs> the law and order leagues really emerged in the mid 1880s, uh, chiefly in response to the Great Southwest Railroad strike. Its birthplace, according to most sources, was Sedalia, Missouri, right? What is that, an hour and a half away from Kansas City? Yes. And, uh, and, and it's, uh, one of its major leaders was a guy by the name of J. West Goodwin, who ran a newspaper, the Sedalia Bazoo. And uh, he was he had a lot of problems with his his printers uh, and uh, constantly firing people, refusing to recognize their union. Uh, but then he was also very active in fighting Knights of Labor um, members who struck against Jay Gould's great um, uh, railroad empire. And uh, the Law and Order Leagues uh, were a vigilante group. They took up guns. They uh, intimidated strikers and assisted uh, uh, scabs across uh, picket lines. And uh, Goodwin, 
as a newspaper owner was able to use his publication to disseminate information about this you know the the evils of unions and martin irons the the union leader of the the knights of labor from sedilia and so um uh so very effective then these these law and order leagues spread uh they're in uh, parsons kansas they're in st louis uh, i'm i'm pretty sure they were in kansas city as well businessmen vigilante organizations where they uh, uh, participate in various forms of, of union busting and strike breaking. Yes, and then it went to the citizens committees and citizens alliances. How how did they operate? Absolutely. So um, I think uh, maybe some of your listeners are familiar with this phenomenon known as astroturfing, right? That is this notion that uh, you know the, it looks like it might be from the grassroots, but it's really top down citizens alliances these were businessmen led they were basically employers associations that were um involved in really uh link rhetorically presenting themselves as very respectable um uh, members of the community and uh, there were citizens alliances all over the country and they came together nationally in a group called the citizens industrial association of america in 1903 J. West Goodwin from the Law and Order Leagues was one of the, the organizers of it, as well as Klansmen, uh, former Klansmen from the 1860s, were also participants. But they broke strikes, they busted unions, but they did it on, with, using the language of reform and progress, the idea of the open shop. Um, in an earlier period in the 19th century, anti-union activists talked about fighting the dangerous classes. The Citizens Alliances talked about protecting the common people. Who were the common people? The common people were the, the scabs, the non-union workers, and the small business people. So the framing was very progressive. Stylistically, it was different, but in terms of substance, it was very similar. We see, and we see the continuity of thuggery, right? Uh, the, the various union bustings and the blacklisting and the strike breaking continued well into what I consider the misnamed progressive era. Yes, and you, in, within your book, you surely describe the violence that was used um, against immigrants, workers, and blacks throughout the whole mm-hmm. book. Yeah. And, yes. and all of that was done in secrecy. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So uh, talk about the character of Owen Wister and his writings about the West. Now, the so- theme... He wrote, wrote the book, The Virginian, which was our theme song tonight. That's right. Uh, Owen Wister was um, on the, the propaganda committee of the Citizens Industrial Association of America after he published his world-famous book, The Virginian, which depicts cowboy culture and the West uh, in a way that um, that legitimizes the big landowners. Now, why do you have to legitimize the big landowners? The reason is because the, the Virginian is loosely based on what's called the Johnson County War in 1892, when these rich stock growers attacked these homesteaders in Johnson County, Wyoming. And, this, and they killed some people. And this was a huge public relations disaster for the stock growers, for the, for the ruling class in Wyoming. Owen Worcester was friends with these people. And he, he learned about this war, uh, the so-called war, from their vantage point. And he wanted to uh, write about it in a way that would, um, you know, what, what Malcolm X once said, turn the victim into the criminal and the criminal into the victim, right? Really uh, legitimize them in a new way. And so the Virginian became 
a best-selling book. It, uh, it, it, it really established the genre of, of Western writing, and it really emphasized individualism uh, and respect for property owners, uh, anti-rustlers. Now, that's, that basic message is very compatible with the emerging anti-union open shop movement. So Worcester would also write magazine articles uh, celebrating the goodness of, of, of scabs. He referred to scabs as, as, as virtuous as the American revolutionaries um, and uh, was, very, um, was a, a great person to have from the perspective of the uh, union busters on their, their payroll because he was such an influential uh, figure. And so um, I, I can imagine that people who read this stuff would be more inclined to, you know, side with the with the bosses and the employers. Literature had that role at that time in the way you know that um, that TV did would later. Yeah. Uh, so with all of these powerful forces against unions um, and putting out there that the individual way is the best way, how can labor combat? this propaganda is what we'd really have to say that it appears to be yeah education radio shows like yours um right i I don't know if i have any very original answer but certainly um you know to build consciousness about these folks to establish confidence in organization uh nothing more important than solidarity right the ruling class has their solidarity they have their networks and organizations and workers must come together and not fall for the rhetoric of right to work and open shop because these people were you know they were narrative creators right they 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 used literature and newspapers to disseminate their idea and it's their ideas excuse me and it's important i think that uh, that our side uh, have our uh, counter our organizations as well um i think you know uh the, the, the work that I'm doing here is I just I really want to expose uh, the ruling class thugs uh, at a minimum want to show that they're not our allies. And so I see myself playing a modest role in trying to to highlight their nefarious deeds. Um, and so that's uh, that that's some progress, I suppose. So you have a part in your book, too, where you draw connections between the January 6th actions, uh, 2023, with the violence perpetrated by the ruling elites. So uh, how do you talk a little bit about that with the idea that we have about two minutes left? Sure, um, the January 6th insurrection was not an anti-labor campaign, but the participants were elites. Uh, it, they were from privilege in general, a lot of right-wing figures who liked the Klan from the 1860s, honored the Confederate flag and believed that violence was a way to achieve their goals. Uh, in that general sense, they were similar to the to the terrorists I write about in the late 19th and early 20th century. So, um, also, I have to tell our listeners that the, your book has beautiful pictures of some of these villains. <laughs> and I have to ask you, who was your favorite evil villain, villain from villain. the elites? Um, it's it's so hard to pick. I know, I know. Well, there's there's one guy who was involved in kidnapping and bringing folks to Honduras. Um, his name was uh, uh, um, McKay. But I think my favorite was Goodwin, who we, I talked about earlier, yeah. because he was so influential. Missouri's own J. West Goodwin, uh, who was instrumental in building the Law and Order Leagues in the 1880s and instrumental in building the Citizens Alliances. 
nationally in uh, in the uh, the turn of the century. Um, and he got his butt kicked a few times, right? Um, for uh, writing critically about these women actresses, they literally went to his office and whipped him. Um, I like that. And uh, his his uh, print shop finally got recognized. They, he, uh, his workers finally won a closed shop in 1907. Persistence pays off. These people are not um, super powerful all the time. So okay, think- well, uh, much thanks. We are out of time. Um, Missouri does it again, huh? Uh, so <laughs> thank you so much, uh, Chad, for telling the truth about the use of terrorism, uh, which thwart- thwarted union progress and the ability for every working person to have decent, fair wages and benefits. Chad Pearson is the author. The book is Capital's Terrorist, Klansman, ter- Klansman Employers, and Lawmen. Uh, got that in the reverse order. Perhaps it would be good to have this book in every union hall. Thanks so much. Our Thank next, you so much. The next half of the Heartland Labor Forum is an interview with labor leader Lynn Fields. Hi, folks. I'm Mike. And I'm Mark Salmonella. We're all about recycling, reusing, and, you know, just keeping our rivers and streams clean. We were out scooping stuff from the Call River with our senior class and found some barely dead fish. Mark, you mean reusable food. Oh, yeah. On a sandbar near Lawrence. And now we're proud owners of Mike and Mark's nearly fresh frozen fish. We specialize in floating carp. And you should specialize in Shots in the Night Radio Theater. Every second Thursday of each month at 7 p.m. Give the gift they will talk about for years to come. A KKFI Guest DJ Certificate. A one-time donation of $200 or a monthly sustaining donation of $16.67 will get your loved one an hour to share their musical taste on the local music program of their choice. A board operator will be provided. They will even get a recording of their DJ experience. Go to kkfi.org and click on the donation button or call 816-931-3122 for more information. To all brave comrades over the sea, in chains for human liberty, and all tailed rebels everywhere, we say be bold to do and That was Willard Losinger with IWW Prison Song, written by Ralph Chaplin. In 1918, some 100 Wobblies, including Chaplin, were jailed in Cook County, Illinois, for violating the Espionage Act. Chaplin wrote a number of songs and poems while in prison, including that one. I'm Mark Galis. Walter Ruther, longtime head of the UAW, said that the labor movement was not some isolated movement, 
Instead, it was part and parcel of the progressive ideals designed to fight entrenched inequalities in American society, such as civil rights, women's rights, universal health care, public education, and affordable housing. While most labor organizations in this country have a progressive bent, law enforcement unions, which represent police officers, prison guards, and other public safety officers, are generally viewed as more conservative. But what happens when a traditionally conservative union has progressive leadership? Joining us is Lynn Fields, president of the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, or AFSCME, Local 3654. Lynn, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Mark. Let's start with a little background. Uh, Tell us about Local 3654. Who's in the bargaining unit and what do you all do? Uh, Yes, sir. So we are AFSCME, Local 3654, and Southwestern Illinois Correctional Facility is in East St. Louis, Illinois. We, uh, we, we, We represent correctional officers and the support staff at the facility. And how big a facility is it? Uh, it's a minimum security mail facility. Uh, it's also a drug treatment program. It's been around for about 30 years-ish. I believe it opened in like 1994. And it's a state-run facility. So what's your specific job at the facility? I am a correctional I'm correctional lieutenant, and I have been working there for 23 years. I've been the president this is my third term now. I was just elected into my third term. We have two-year terms. So it is, it's, it's been exciting. <laughs> I can say, you know, I, it has been exciting. And, and how many people are in the bargaining unit? 300 of us. Uh, and the bargaining unit entails like several. So it's not just one bargaining unit. The local represents several different bargaining units. Like, like I said, we have the support staff as far as the clerical. We have uh, the counselors. We have the security staff. We also have the maintenance craftsman staff. And we have the dietary staff. There are also... We have a education staff that's under contract with the state that's a part of our union, as well as the healthcare workers. Are you all under one contract or are there separate contracts for all those folks? They're the state contracts. And then we also have three separate con- contracts through the state. So contractual workers, that would be education, which is Lakeland College. And then we have Wexford Healthcare that does the healthcare unit. You, you mentioned that and we you, also have geo. We, we have geo, which is the drug abuse counselors. You mentioned that you're uh, serving your third term as union president. Congratulations. How did you come to be involved in uh, union leadership? You know, um, so I grew up in a union household. My dad was in a union. He worked for Illinois Power, which is now Amron. So he always uh, he encouraged us. He actually told me, you know, when I was younger, he said, you know, make sure you get a union job because you're going to get fired. You have a big mouth. So I was just like, yeah, whatever. So when I got hired, you know, on with the with the prison, you know, he asked me the first thing he asked me was, is this a union job? And I said, yes, sir. So he was really happy about that, you know, but how I got involved in the union, I was just one of those dues paying members. I just paid my dues and then I just went home, you know, and I left that to the grownups, you know, any other union business, you know, I just put my trust in the leadership there and then I moved on. So about 15, 16 years, oh God, gosh, I guess about 15 years in, 14, 15 years in, a good friend of mine came to me. He was our secretary at the time. And Jay Scott, he came to me and he said, you know, hey, you know, I got some personal stuff going on. I'm not going to be able to run 
this term, would you, nobody ever wants to be the secretary, right? Nobody wants to be the secretary or the treasurer. It's a lot of work. So he said, you know, if you would run for secretary, they always run unopposed. And then after I get done with my personal issues, I'll come back. You can step down. I'll take back over. It won't be a big deal. It's easy. You'll just take some notes is what he told me. And because he was a good friend of mine, I said, yeah, I, I got you, Jay. You know, I, I can do that. I can sit in some meetings, take some notes. No big deal. And I got in of course, you know, because of course no one ran against me and I became the secretary. And as I got more involved in how this actually works and I became more educated on the logistics of this organization, I found that I had this passion for something that I didn't know that I had a passion for, you know, workers rights, being an advocate for workers rights, you know, was something that I never knew that I could, I just inherently became kind of kind of good as something that I wasn't expecting to. It kind of just fell in my lap. You know, I've always wanted to help people. I've always been a fixer, a helper. And this was a way for me to, you know, kind of give back to my workplace. Uh, long story short, Jay never came back. He just kind of, he said, uh, go keep running with it, sister. Keep, keep rolling with it. You know, uh, Ask Me is really really good as far as training their leaders. Uh, so, you know, I got a lot of good training through the AFSCME Women's Leadership Academy. Uh, I was gold for two weeks where they trained us up on how to be stronger female leaders in our locals. And then I just took the ball and ran from there. And then uh, eventually I became the vice president and then I became the president. AFSCME is a pretty uh, broad union, isn't it, in terms of the various yes. sectors they represent? Can you can you speak a little bit about the various groups that AFSCME represents? So, Illinois, uh, AFSCME represents, you know, not only do they represent correctional officers, they also represent the Department of Human Services. They, they represent the Department of Children and Family Services. They also represent the Department of Revenue. You know, they, so, I mean, if you can think of any kind of state ran department or agency AFSCME is the exclusive bargaining bargaining uh, for them so that we we represent them so yes and there are also some police departments we also uh run the department the dnr department of natural resources so oh yeah so AFSCME is the big dog as far as labor in the state of illinois there is a bit of a paradox when it comes to the labor movement has historically been very progressive and law enforcement unions representing either police or correctional officers or parole officers, whatever that might be, law enforcement unions are generally viewed as more conservative. So how have you seen that play out with respect to your union? So, you know, and I'm, I'm, I don't want to say I'm treading lightly here, you know, because these are still my brothers and sisters. Right. Uh, but. It's, I mean, I mean, it's, it's something that, you know, you just say the quiet part out loud. You know, law enforcement does tend to lean more conservative. Uh, however, you know, as times will and do change, the work, the workers change, attitudes change, you know. So we, you know, our local and our union, we have to be ready to to confront that head on. We have to be able to compromise. We have to be able to find that happy medium. And I will say that AFSCME does a really good job in trying to 
kind of bring everybody in. No, we don't always get along. As a matter of fact, when we endorse certain political candidates, you know, it's always going to be a fight. But because this is a Democratic union, you know, we take votes on who we endorse. There is a process in how we choose who we endorse. So, I mean, it's just one of those things where you're going to be a part of it or you're not. I mean, it can be very hard because, you know, in Illinois, we have Chicago and the rest of Illinois. But, you know, because it's a numbers game, you know, and it's all about organizing. So, and and that's what we do. You know, we're going to choose who's going to be best for our workers. We don't choose based on, you know, what these guys are doing. You know, we, we choose because it's, you know, who is for workers' rights. That That's who we want in office because our contracts are contingent on who's in office. And whether you're progressive, whether you're conservative, everybody understands the hard line, which is dollars. And if you're going to vote for a guy who's here to bust up a union or a guy who's, you know, there to break the pension program, no one, I don't care who, you know, you vote for, inter, you know, nationally, but here statewide, you're going to vote for your pocketbook each and every time. So, and, and that's what we count on. So does, how does that affect your leadership as president? I mean, you sounds like you have to really walk a fine line uh, in dealing with that. Is that fair? It's fair, you know, um, because all of us have our feelings, you know, about, and, and it's not just about money, you know, I mean, we have to think about like where these guys stand as far as, you know, uh, reproductive rights, you know, LGBTQ rights, you know, so we, we, we take that into consideration, but you have to bring it back around. Sometimes you have to remind people like what is important, what's important, you know, not like who's sleeping with who, what books this guy is reading, what church this guy attends, because fundamentally we all want the same thing, which is to take care of our families, when we walk through the door, we want to make sure that we turn on the light. Does the light come on? You open the refrigerator. Is there food there? You know, can we afford to take our families on a nice vacation? You know, things like that. Just things that just people should be able to do. And one job should be enough to afford that standard. And so, I mean, it's, it just comes down to brass tacks. Like, OK, are we going to get fixated on you know, how this guy feels about reproductive rights. Because at the end of the day, whether somebody, you know, chooses to have an abortion or not, how does that affect your pocketbook? And those are the kind of conversations that we just have to have. And you can't be afraid to have those tough conversations, even when it's with your brothers and sisters, even when it's with your union siblings, you know, because Harry Potter, Dumbledore said, it's easier to stand up to your enemies than it is to your friends. And, you know, just as a family, you know, we have to be able to have those tough conversations with each other. So in your time in the union, have you seen any trend with respect to this? For what, what I mean is, have you seen the union become more progressive over time, less, or does it, again, just depend on who's out there? Absolutely becoming more progressive. And I am ecstatic about this because it takes all of us. It's not your father's union anymore. You know, we have these young kids, these kids of color, these L LGBTQ kids, like they don't want to hear our crap. 
Like they ain't going to wait for us to die out. Like my generation, like we just, we'll just wait for somebody to die out. Right. And just say, Oh, we'll take their place when they're dead. These kids are like, Hey, if you ain't doing the job, we will get rid of you right now. Like these Parkland kids, like these people, uh, just, you know, the Amazon workers, you know, when they decided to organize, they reached out to several, you know, uh, established unions to represent them. And, you know, I've, I've spoken to Chris Smalls before. And like he said, you know, nobody wanted to deal with us because nobody wanted to take that on, you know, and now unions are coming to them, wanting them because now they have the numbers, you know, and and that's that's good for them. You know, I mean, unfortunate for the labor movement, because I feel like we missed an opportunity to organize there. You know, however, these Starbucks labor unions, Chipotle people that do the horses and they act like they're, uh, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Like the Camelot people, like I can't Mm -hmm. think of who they are right now, but you know, I am, I am loving all of this, you know, and and that's what we need because it takes all of us because all the rich people, they're going to band together. And that's what we need to do. You know, they have more money than us, but we have the numbers and we just have to organize. And when we start organizing, then that's where our power is going to come from is the numbers, not the money, but the numbers. Do you find yourself networking often with other unions or labor leaders, maybe not necessarily in in law enforcement, but generally speaking, uh, do you find opportunities to network uh, with other other unions on these issues? Absolutely. I actively seek out uh, other ways to reach out to these people and to form alliances with them, because that's the only way we're going to make this thing work. Um, I, you know, the uh, Regina V. Polk Women's Leadership School that happens every year in Illinois. Uh, There's also Labor Notes, an international union conference that happens every year. You know, I'm a part of the uh, Coalition of Black Trade Unionists. You know, uh, Pride at Work is another, you know, labor uh, intensive organization, you know, where they advocate for LGBTQ worker rights. I mean, things like that. I mean, that's how we're going to stay connected. That's how you know what the left hand and the right hand is doing. Because as long as we're we're going in the same direction, like that's that's what's going to bring us more strength and more power. Do you have any thoughts on the future of law enforcement unions and the labor movement? I mean, you, you've talked about how your particular union is a little more on the progressive side compared to, say, the fraternal order of police. The FOP, you know, police officers are generally viewed as more conservative, uh, you know, supporting you know, more conservative policies. Do you have any sense of what the future looks like for law enforcement unions in the labor movement as a whole? When people talk about, I mean, and there, and there is, you know, there there was actually, a, you know, there's a push among even uh, union activists to remove law enforcement from unions, right? And, and I'm not ignorant to that fact, you know, but it's like I had to explain and I was trying to, you know, come across to, you know, some people that I talked to recently, I was trying to recruit and get some of my younger, you know, some younger people in my family to come over to my job, you know, and they kind of threw it in my face, you know, that, you know, hey, you know, you're you're with the police. Like, why should we help you? You know, and like I explained to people, you know, I, or I try to come across what would a prison look like if no people of color worked there, you know, and who would be there to advocate for the men and women who are incarcerated? If like you can't name, name, name me any kind of institution where there's not some kind of like, I, I can prove racism in any institution. There's racism in real estate. 
there's, you know, racism in the healthcare system. There's, you know, in the education system, you know, so, but the point is though, we have to be in these places to kind of police that. The unions are not here to protect people who, we're not here to protect the bad apples, right? We're here to protect contracts. We're not here to protect people, right? So if a teacher is, you know, being misappropriate, being misappropriate with a student, does that make all teachers bad? Absolutely not. Our unions protect safe environments at work. It protects our benefits. It protects unfair disciplinary measures. That's what the union is there to protect. Our, Our leader, Lee Saunders, our international leader, you know, he came out and he, you know, is very vocal about Black Lives Matter. He has two sons. He has three grandsons. He is himself a black man, a very proud black man. And, you know, and he said it best. He said, you know, the killing, the tragic killing of George Floyd should not be a pretext to, you know, to take away workers' rights. A worker is a worker, whether he's a police officer, an ambulance driver, you know, a nurse, a teacher. The workers' rights are the health and safety on the job, you know, the, the salary, our, our protections at work, not to protect you from, you know, being a racist, not to protect you from being a murderer, you know, not to protect you from you know, doing things that again, that go against our standard of conduct, you know, just like in, in the military, right? We have the uni- uniform code of military justice. I myself am a veteran, I'm a proud army veteran. And when I read about soldiers, you know, doing things that are against uniform code of military justice, I mean, all military is bad because there's, there is a there's space for that. We need that in our society. We need law enforcement. We need people to enforce the laws in this country. You know, we're doing a job that nobody wants to do. You know, that's why we get paid what we do. That's why we go in every day to protect each other. And no, if if one of you know my members they do something, you know, against the law. Like, let's just start there. They do something against the law. No, the union is not there to protect you from that. Well, it sounds like you're navigating a very difficult job very well. So I wish you luck moving forward uh, as uh, president of the union. Lynn Fields, president of Ask Me Local 3654. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Good evening and welcome to Remember Our Struggle. I'm Ariana Eckel, journeyman wireman of IBW Local 124 here in Kansas City. Tonight I'm going to be speaking about the Washington, D.C. Navy shipyard strike of 1835. Don't answer. Don't answer. Those were the calls of workers from outside the Navy shipyard gate on July 31, 1835 in Washington, D.C. as the clerk read the morning roll. Of the 231 people employed at the shipyards, 175 would answer the call. An article put out by worker leaders calling an end to the action by negotiation was among the first published uses of the word strike to describe a labor dispute, and is considered the first strike by federal civilian employees. 1835 was a landmark year for American labor, as a coherent, multi-city, translocal movement developed calling for better wages, better working conditions, and the 10-hour day. Conditions in the shipyard had been intolerable for a while, and efforts to organize for improvement had been underway for some time in multiple cities, including D.C., Boston, Philadelphia, and NYC. In the decades leading up to 1835, a transformation had been occurring in the makeup of the shipyard workforce in D.C. For the first 30 years of the 1800s, the shipyard had been the largest employer 
employer, of enslaved African Americans in the area. Their owners were both wealthy local civilians and Navy officers, and they in effect rented out their slaves and pocketed the wages. 1830 marked the first year that the D.C. Census indicates there were more free black persons than enslaved in the district. Black workers at the dock continued to be given the least desirable work, but the growing population of free black wage workers were viewed as in direct competition with their white counterparts. For the workers who were not enslaved, the early 1800s marked a constant state of anxiety regarding employment and wages. Wages fluctuated sometimes daily. For example, shipyard carpenters at WNY were paid $2.50 daily in 1808 and $1.64 daily in 1820. Hours were almost invariably long, but also highly variable. And employment could end at any time. Foreshocks of the building earthquake in labor and race relations in the D.C. shipyard in 1835 had been felt strongly on two previous occasions. First, when in 1827, workers briefly walked out over a wage dispute, and in 1830, workers stayed home for a week to show that, the per, that their per diem wage rate should have been granted sooner. The straw that broke the camel's back in 1835 was the imposition of a new regulation by the yard commandant forbidding yard workers to bring their lunches into the yard. This action was taken due to the report of Navy property going missing and the subsequent discovery of one man in possession of a lot of missing Navy property, and the workers felt that this regulation was not only a violation of their rights but also an insult to their honor. Workers refused to answer the role and began their strike. The, work, the yard commandant, Commodore Isaac Hull, had a long-standing horrible rapport with those under him, and this did not help matters at all. One of the few primary sources for information on the events in D.C. that summer is the diary of an African-American dock worker named Michael Shiner. He recorded events around D.C. for almost 60 years, first as a slave and later as a free man, providing historians invaluable material not just on the shipyard but also the War of 1812, the burning of the Capitol, and many other events. Mr. Shiner explains that white workers believed that Commodore Hull was intentionally importing black workers from Baltimore and other areas in order to break the strike. Hull appealed to the secretary, to Secretary of the Navy, Dickerson, expressing apprehension as to the safety of the black caulkers he had brought in from Baltimore, and appealed for guidance on whether or not he would, should allow them to sleep inside the fort at night. Dickerson, in effect, ordered them thrown to the mob. Long-standing, intentionally sown racial division and tension over fierce competition for shipyard jobs exploded into a three-day rampage by white workers and other residents called the Snow Riot. What had been a labor strike morphed into a race riot. A white mob attacked the popular restaurant, the Epicurean Eating House, owned by a freed, by freedman Beverly Snow. Shiner reports this was due to a rumor and that the mob broke his restaurant up root and branch, but that Mr. Snow was successfully able to escape the city with his life. Thus frustrated, the mob turned to attacking churches, businesses, and other establishment owned or frequented by free black people and made a threat to, to march on the shipyard to, in pursuit of Hull. The shipyard was subsequently fortified, but the one-sided racial violence continued for days until finally President Andrew Jackson ordered a company of U.S. Marines to restore order. The Washington, D.C. Navy shipyard strike of 1835 failed primarily for two reasons, one being the refusal of the Secretary of the Navy to negotiate with workers, but the primary one being the racial division sown by those in positions of management and leadership in the city and the Navy, and the involvement of large groups of mechanics and laborers from the shipyard in the Snow Riot. Despite these setbacks in the fight for the 10-hour day, efforts continued translocally, and five years later, in 1840, all manual laborers, em laborers employed by the government were granted the right to the 10-hour day. Make no mistake, that concession from above would never have come without the collective contributions of the individual people behind it forcing that progress. 
Have a great evening, everyone. And now for the Heartland Labor Forum calendar, December 14th. This calendar is posted on the Heartland Labor Forum Facebook page where you can find links, which I cannot read over the air. American Postal Workers Local 67 is collecting for Toys for Tots. Bring unwrapped gifts to 3824 East 16th Street. That's by the huge postal center right off of Truman Road. Uh, at, that's in Kansas City, Missouri. The Greater Kansas City Chapter of the A. Philip Randolph Institute invites you to a dedication honoring Brother Elton Gibson. That's Saturday, December 16th, 9.30 a.m. at the Heavy Construction Laborers Local 633, Union Hall, 7820 Prospect Avenue, Kansas City, Missouri. There will be a reception also. Brother Elton was very instrumental in our Christmas food giveaway, which will occur after the reception. Please RSVP to Michael Bell at mbkb7603 at gmail or call him at 816-985-4693. And once again, you can find all this information on the Heartland Labor Forum Facebook page. The UU Forum this coming Sunday, The Miracle of Innocence with Lamont McIntyre and Valerie Burton. That's at 9.30 a.m. Sunday at All Souls UU Church, 4501 Walnut, Kansas City, or on their YouTube channel, which you can find on the church's webpage. Save the date. The Labor Notes Conference is now accepting registrations. You can get a discount up until, I believe, March 1st. Uh, the conference is April 19th to 21st, 2024, at a hotel near the Chicago O'Hare Airport. You'll find early registration at labornotes/events/2023, and that's it for tonight's show. Tune in next week. Our show is "We Want Everything," a novel about the hot autumn of strikes in Italy in 1969, and Stephen Sylvia, the UAW Southern Gamble, organizing workers at foreign-owned vehicle plants. Thanks to tonight's engineer, Stephen Hill, and stay tuned for Shots in the Night Radio Theater. listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, a show by and about workers, our workplaces, and our labor movement. We are radio that talks back to the boss, and you can talk back to us too. Send us your feedback, your workplace stories, news, and ideas for shows to KKFI at gmail.com. Our website, where we archive shows and post our upcoming ones, is heartlandlaborforum.org. The views expressed on this show are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any of the unions involved. Tune in every Thursday evening at 6 or to our rebroadcast Friday mornings at 5 right here, 90.1 FM. We still got our pride, cause we are the working class and that's the place to be.